1 John 4, verses 1 to 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Beloved, do not believe in every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming and now is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, obviously, uh, this morning we are not in the Gospel of John. Uh, we're taking another break from John, a short break. It'll be this week and next week, as far as I anticipate. Um, and um, we're going to be focusing on the topic of revival and trying to answer the question, how do we discern a true revival? How do, we, how do we evaluate something that is claimed to be a revival and discern whether or not it truly is a work of the Spirit of God? And um, we'll get into more of why we're doing that in just a, just a moment. But as we begin, why don't we pray together? Our Heavenly Father, we know that you are a God of grace and mercy. You are a God who is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness. You are a God who keeps loving kindness for thousands. You forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, but you will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Lord, what, what glorious realities you have revealed of yourself to us. You are a God who is holy, and you are a God who is merciful. You are a God who is just and righteous, and you are a God who justifies the ungodly and the unrighteous. You are a God who upholds the severity of your holy law in all of its demands against the sinner. And yet, through your Son, you've given us a righteousness apart from the law, though witnessed by the law and the prophets, but a righteousness that is through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for your mercy towards us, and we pray that this morning we would be refreshed and we would be revived with a sense of your great mercy. Or as we consider this topic of revival, we, we don't want to come to it blindly. We don't want to come to it with any kind of overreaction. So Lord, would you please teach us by your spirit and by your truth how to think about this issue. And Lord, we trust that you will lead us. We trust that you're going to guide us. And 
we believe the truth of your word, that your eye is even at this moment upon us. So, Lord, please be favorable towards us. Be kind towards us through Jesus Christ and help us sense your nearness among us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said uh, this morning, we are taking another break from the Gospel of John to talk about revival. And recently, uh, recently a lot of attention has been focused on what is being called the Asbury Revival. Has everybody heard of that and what's going on? Raise your hand if you have not. Okay. Just a few of you. That's probably a good thing. It shows that you have a healthy relationship with uh, the news circuit and the internet. But anyway, the um, the Asbury revival, as it's called, has been drawing a lot of attention, not only from Christians who are paying attention to what's going on there, but also from unbelievers. Um, it's uh, tens of millions of hits on social media. And uh, it even has drawn the attention of news outlets like the Washington Post, Fox News, New York Times, and others. Now, just so that we're all on the same page, let me give some details of what has happened in or at the university or Asbury University. Not everything that, I'm not going to mention everything that could be said about what's gone on here, but the things that I want to bring up Uh, to our attention right now are the things I think we need to keep in mind as we evaluate whether or not this is a true work of God or whether it's a fabrication or whether it's a mixture of the two. It's reported that on February 8th, following a normal morning chapel service, a revival began to break out at Asbury University. About 20 students stayed after the chapel service for prayer. And one who was in attendance in that meeting said that when one student in particular openly confessed sin before the group, all of a sudden the atmosphere changed. And she goes on to say, for seemingly no reason, this prayer time simply did not end. The students remained there praying together throughout the night. So it was a morning chapel service. They stayed all day, and they stayed together praying all through the night. That was the beginning. In response to this, the president of the university sent out an email to the student body stating that an outpouring of the Spirit of God was taking place and called the rest of the student body to come to Hughes Auditorium. That's the place where they were meeting for worship and chapel service. Once the news spread on social media, it began to draw a crowd, and by February 18th, what started with a handful of students had turned into tens of thousands of people. With many other universities and institutions in the area claiming a similar effect taking place on their campuses. Now on February 15th, the student body decided that it would only allow people 25 years old and younger into Hughes Auditorium, and this was reportedly done so in order to keep the focus on, quote, the voice of Generation Z, end quote. 
On February 16th, the school announced that it would no longer host outpouring meetings, as they were calling them. They would no longer host outpouring meetings after Friday, February 24th. And that was mostly due to safety concerns they were running into. So they announced on the 16th, the end of these meetings would be on the 24th. According to Asbury University's website, Thursday, February 23rd, this last Thursday, marked the end of the outpouring meetings. So they stopped meeting at that point. Now I've listened to solid Christians discussing what has taken place in Asbury or at Asbury, and um, it seems that the majority fall into one of two extremes. One group is either sold out and utterly committed to the idea that this was definitely a true work of the Spirit of God. And then on the other side, there's another group that completely denounces it as a false revival and as something that is entirely unbiblical. Even one resource stating that revivals themselves are not things that we ought to be expecting or looking for from the hand of God. What should we think about these events that have taken place in Wilmore, Kentucky? That's where Asbury University is, Wilmore, Kentucky. For starters, I think that we should guard against being reactionary. In light of the history of God's dealings with his people, we should have a more careful, balanced, and even a more optimistic approach as we evaluate what has happened at Asbury University. And yes, Jamie, I did say we should have a more optimistic approach to what's going on or what has happened there. I am am the quintessential pessimist, or as we pessimists like to say, we are the realist. We see the world as it is. uh, But optimists see God in more of the light as he is. So I want to try and be optimistic here. So for starters, I think we should guard against being reactionary. This knee-jerk reaction to say, yes, this is a work of the Spirit of God, or no, this absolutely is not. We need to be more careful in the way that we evaluate what has happened. And also, let me say from the beginning that whether or not we can say at the end of our evaluation that what has happened at Asbury is a true move of God, whether or not we can say it truly is from God, one thing that this event has revealed is a deep yearning for the reality of God that is present in the hearts of the people. And not only among Christians, in many ways, what this event has revealed to us is that the world itself is longing for some deeper, truer reality beyond itself. What else would draw the attention of the New York Times to something like Asbury Revival? There is a yearning for something to be true beyond ourselves, an interest that is piqued by even the smallest glimmer of hope that a supernatural work could be taking place. And so if we can't take anything else away from this incident, that in itself is a good sign and something that we need to take advantage of at every opportunity the Lord gives us with people around us. People are longing for a deeper reality beyond what they know that this world can offer them. And we have that reality in our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to give it to them. Now, as far as offering my take on the Asbury revival, some of you have already asked me whether I believe it's truly from God or whether I believe it is not, and I'm not going to tell you what I think about the Asbury Revival, at least until the end of next week's message. 
But I do fear that in our fast-moving age, that I'm a little late to the party in this evaluation. I'm going to ask you to be patient with me. I wanted to get all of this done in one message, strike hard while the iron's hot, but I hope that the Lord will keep that iron hot at least until next week, uh, because there's just too much to cover in, in one Sunday morning about revival. Take my time. Yeah, that's right. That's right, brother. So I may be a little late to the party in offering my evaluation, but one thing that has been obvious to me as I've listened to many different people talk about this event is that there is a general lack of understanding about what revival is and what revival means. So I want to take this as a God-given opportunity for us at Oak Ridge Community Church to talk about revival for a couple of Sundays. So we are not exclusively talking about what is being called the Asbury Revival as we're talking about revival here today. We're simply asking ourselves, what is revival? And how would we recognize it if it came? Asbury has generated a lot of excitement. And let me openly acknowledge, as someone who longs to see revival sweep through Christ church in our day, in these lands, I long for that. I have been hopeful that this could indeed be the beginning of a true move of the Spirit of God. How many of us have been praying for that for years now? And I think it's okay for us to be a little excited as we see some of the hopeful signs and as we see some of the good things that maybe have attended or come out of Asbury, the Asbury University, we can be excited by those things and we can pray and seek the Lord that he would continue to cause the good things to increase. But... At the end of the day, just like anything else, we must not let our excitement keep us from honestly evaluating and critiquing this work by the only infallible standard God has given us, which is his word. As was read in 1 John 4.1, we are warned as believers not to believe every spirit, but we are exhorted to test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, two things to point out from this verse. Number one, the immediate attitude that God expects mature Christians to have is an attitude of guardedness. We are not to be ignorant, gullible little fools walking through this world. Believing every little thing that we hear about the work of the Spirit of God. It says right here, believers are to adopt an attitude of guardedness when it comes to evaluating what the Holy Spirit is doing in our day. Do not believe every spirit. We do not immediately, we we are not supposed to immediately believe every spirit that comes to us, but rather we are to maintain a posture towards those spirits that test them to see whether they are genuinely from the Lord. Now, this is specifically talking about ministers and false teachers who may come around to churches, but the principle can be applied even to spiritual movements that are taking place in our day. A false teacher comes to us and says, I've been sent by the Spirit of God, and we say, well, we will test you and see. A movement comes upon us and claims to be a movement from the Spirit of God. We ought to immediately adopt a posture that says, we will test this and see. A second thing to 
point out from 1 John 4.1 is that testing and examining and scrutinizing a work to find out whether or not it's truly birthed of the Spirit of God is not quenching the Spirit, but is rather honoring Him because it is doing what He commands us to do. So often you hear the... Uh, the counter to someone who takes my approach to evaluate a move and see if it actually is of God, or you're just denying the work of the Spirit of God, you better be careful because you're going to blaspheme the Spirit. You're going to say that this is not a work of the Spirit of God and you're going to offend Him. Well, wait a second now. Hasn't the Holy Spirit commanded us in His Word? Hasn't the Spirit Himself told us that when something like this is going on, we need to examine it and test it? Yes, He has. So, in the spirit of 1 John 4.1, if we examine this claim that this revival in Asbury is a true work of the Spirit of God, we are not quenching the Spirit by doing that so long as we are maintaining an open heart that is ready to receive and acknowledge any good thing that the Spirit is doing. Okay? You follow me there? We see the same exhortation in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 21, where we are told by Paul, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything and hold fast to that which is good. We don't want to quench the spirit in his work among us. We don't want to call something evil that the spirit of God himself is doing. We don't want to be guilty of that. But at the same time, we don't have to receive every single thing that comes to us saying that it's of the Spirit of God. We need to take a mature approach and examine it and then hold fast to what is good. Even if we have to just eat the meat and spit out the bones. Maybe there are bones in the Asbury Revival that we can spit out. The question for us is, is there any meat in the Asbury Revival that we need to ingest? That we need to acknowledge is truly a work of the Spirit. So as I've thought through how to examine what has taken place at Asbury, there are a number of considerations that have come to my mind. Today we're going to focus on two of them. Next week we're going to come back and finish looking at the other two. So there are four considerations that I want to give to you. Today, just two of them. And to be frank, today is definitely more preliminary to the discussion that we're going to have next week about evaluating revival. So the place, the place to begin, the place to start evaluating whether or not a, a revival is truly of the Lord, I think the place to begin is for us to face an honest fact about our own history as Christ's people. First point that we want to look at today is that church history is a history of revivals. Church history is a history of revivals. In all the history of the people of God, we find periods of unique, supernatural works of the Spirit of God. And so as we begin to evaluate something like Asbury, our knee-jerk reaction does not need to be, God doesn't do that kind of work, this is not from the Lord. Throughout history, God's people have experienced what the Bible refers to as Revivals, or if you translate that word from Hebrew, a quickening of life. It is an enlivening that God accomplishes in the hearts of his people. Now we see this take place all throughout the Old Testament period, right? 
So we see it happening in Israel under Moses in his leadership. Remember when they were building the tabernacle? As they were gathering the supplies for the tabernacle and as the Lord was filling certain men to accomplish the work that he called them to do, it says that the Lord stirred up their hearts and the people gave as their hearts desired to give. And Oholiab and Baaziel, or however you say his name, the Lord gave them a spirit of wisdom so that they knew exactly how to create the tabernacle according to God's instructions. That was a real revival. The Lord pouring out His Spirit upon His people and quickening and enlivening their conception, their, their perception of spiritual realities around them. We see it um, in the time of the judges. We see certain revivals take place. We see it under the kings Hezekiah and Josiah in the Old Testament. We see revival taking place during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. We see uh, it taking place under the ministries of Haggai and Zechariah. Can I say something here? It's not Haggai. I was listening to J.I. Packer this week talk about revival, and he kept saying, Haggai, 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 my brother. It's Haggai. <laughs> Haggai. Anyway. Real revivals took place under them. You can read about that in the book Haggai and in the book Zechariah. Zechariah opens up with a, with a call to revival. The Lord says, draw near to me so that I can draw near to you. That's what the whole book of Zechariah is about. It's about, it's about national and, 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 and individual revival taking place. Anyway, so real revivals have been, uh, what we would categorize as revivals, have been preserved in the record of the Old Testament. The workings of God among the people of Israel. And when the effects of these revivals had worn off, what we find God's people doing is crying out for God to restore and renew that work. So, for example, in Psalm 85, verse 6, the psalmist is crying out to the Lord in the midst of this sense that God has rejected his people. He's hidden his face from his people. He's angry with his people. The sons of Korah are crying out to the Lord saying, How long will your indignation remain upon us? O Lord, will you not yourself revive us so that your people might rejoice in you? See, what the only thing that makes sense of a prayer like that is that revival was a reality that the people had already experienced in their past, and it was something in that moment of history they recognized they did not have. They had experienced a move of God in their midst, and at that moment, they were not experiencing it. And that created within them this holy longing, this burden to see the Lord move among them the way he had before. You can read of this in Isaiah when Isaiah tells the Lord, Lord, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down and do the work among us that you once did before. They had experienced times of real spiritual revival before and those experiences of spiritual refreshment in God when they had worn off, the people were left yearning to see it revived among them again. That is revival. Now that work of God reviving his people is not limited to the Old Testament. And in fact, in fact, there were seasons of awakening and revival that carried on throughout the history of the New Covenant Church as well. It can be rightly said that the history of Christ's church is a history marked by revivals. And let me just 
Name off a number of them. I'm going to walk from the very beginning in Acts chapter 2 all the way to the mid-1900s. Okay? So just have your pen, pencil ready. You can go back and take notes and look these up later if you want to. I'm just going to mention them in brief, in brief passing. But the history of Christ's church is a history marked by revivals. It began right in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit of God was poured out upon them in this great epic, this great uh, moment of redemptive history, that was a unique time. The Spirit of God being poured out upon His people in a new covenant capacity. That's a unique time. But it becomes the model of every single revival that follows. Where the same things that happened with the church in Acts chapter 2 begin to happen throughout the history of the church when the Spirit of God is poured out upon His people afresh. I'm not talking about second blessing here. Crazy, charismatic nonsense. I'm not talking about that. And I mourn every time I read Martin Lloyd-Jones speaking of a second baptism in the Holy Spirit. No, brother. There's one baptism in the Spirit, but there are many fillings of the Spirit. And that's what we're after. So the book of Acts becomes this, this uh, model of revival that will follow throughout the rest of the history of the church. And let me, let me say this, that the revival that we see beginning in the book of Acts leads to an awakening that sweeps across the entire Roman Empire. And, and no matter how we feel about Constantine and the joining together of the church and state in the 300s, no matter how we feel about that, the reality that we must acknowledge is that this spiritual awakening that began with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts ultimately led to the overthrow of what was the Roman Empire. 300 years of God quickening His people and causing the life of the Spirit to manifest among them in amazing ways, giving them fortitude and strength to withstand the martyrdoms that were upon them. Horrific things. Go read Fox's Book of Martyrs and you'll see what they had to endure. No way they could have done that apart from a supernatural strengthening of the Spirit of God. And what was the end result of it all? This ungodly system of the Roman Empire was overthrown. Now, this history of supernatural movements of the Spirit of God continued with various other revivals and awakenings, such as the revival that took place under John Chrysostom. Chrysostom means golden-mouthed. He was called Chrysostom because he had a golden, he, he was the golden-mouthed preacher. He was so full of the Spirit of God and with the Word of God that when he preached, the hearts of people melted under his ministry. They called him the golden-mouthed. And by the way, the method of preaching that he utilized was utterly unique to him in early church. He, he preached expositionally, line upon line through books of the Bible, the same method that John Calvin adopted in his ministry in Geneva, which sparked another revival there. That was in the three to four hundreds. Then there was the missionary movement to England in 597 under Pope Gregory the Great and Augustine of Canterbury. And when you hear me say Pope Gregory the Great, don't, don't think of him in terms of what we would think of popes nowadays. Okay? Radically different. 
you can go look that up in church history if you want. But Pope Gregory the Great and Augustine of Canterbury. The, uh, Pope Gregory sent Augustine to, to England with a number of other faithful preachers. And the gospel was preached there, and it is reported that within one year, 10,000 people had come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and had been baptized upon their profession of faith. That's in 597. Then you have St. Columba and the missions movement from the monastery in Iona, beginning in the late 500s and early 600s. Uh, that missionary movement lasted for 200 years, and everywhere that they went, they would plant these Iona crosses, these crosses with a circle in the middle of it. That's an Iona cross. And they would plant a cross wherever the missionaries went from the island of Iona because it was their way of expressing that Christ was claiming his dominion over these lands for his glory. That the Spirit of God had brought the gospel of God with such power and conviction upon the people that the people openly now belonged to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what those Iona crosses represented. Then you have the Petrobrusian movement and the Waldensian movements in France and Italy in the 1100s. Then you have the, uh, John Wycliffe and the Wallards in England in the 1300s. Then you have... Jan Hus and the Hussites in Prague in the 1400s. Then you have the Reformation itself in the 1500s with Martin Luther in Germany and Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland and later on John Calvin in Geneva and John Knox moving up into Scotland. John Knox was a man so full of the Holy Spirit and the gospel of Christ that he made the queen who was in opposition to him weep over her sin before God. That's revival. Then you had the Puritan movement in England in the late 15 to early or in, uh, to late 1600s. Men like William Perkins and William Ames and John Owen and John Bunyan. And then the Great Awakening beginning in 1734 and going through 1760 under the ministry of men like Jonathan Edwards in America and George Whitfield and John and Charles Wesley and John Rogers and Hal Harris and Daniel Rowland and William Williams. When we sing those hymns, those rich old hymns by William Williams, we're singing songs that were birthed out of a period of revival. Can I just say something here too? I wish we sang older hymns more often. Because, not because I'm holding on to some tradition that I think we need to, we need to, we need to keep this tradition because this is what we have, this is what we've always done. No, that's garbage. That's nonsense. The reason why I love the older hymns is because of the times of refreshing in the Lord out of which they were birthed. There were spiritual movements of the Spirit of God that brought these hymns into existence that is not existent in our day right now. Now, can people write good songs? Yes, they can. I'm not trying to disparage all new songs that we sing or anything like that. Please don't hear me wrong. Don't misinterpret me. But what I am saying is that there was a quality of spiritual life out of which those older hymns were birthed that we know nothing of right now. That's probably why we don't find those older hymns as being very attractive now, by the way. It's not the hymns. It's us. It's us. It's us. You can disagree with me, it's fine. This is not a salvation issue. Um, but that was a great awakening in, in, in America and all throughout the, the region of the United Kingdom. And then you have the revival of Kilsith in 
1830s under W.H. and W.C. Burns and Robert Murray McShane. You guys know that name. We read his reading plan. Died young, but he still helped serve in the time of revival in the 1830s in Scotland. And then in 1857 to 1861, there was a revival in England and in America that began in New York City and swept across both countries. Charles Spurgeon spoke of this revival, and he even experienced the effects of it in London, spreading abroad and, in, and infecting his church with new life. Hundreds of thousands of people were swept into the kingdom between 1857 and 1861. Have you ever heard of that revival? Some of you have. What was that the precursor to? Civil War. The Civil War. Really, that revival was an act of God's mercy in America, bringing in hundreds of thousands of men who were just about to step off the precipice into death. The bloodiest war. 600,000 men died in the Civil War. And hundreds of thousands of those men, maybe, had been impacted by the revivals of 1857 to 1861. Then you have the Welsh revivals in 1904 to 1905. And, and then the revival on the Isle of Lewis in 1949 under Duncan Campbell. You know how that revival was started. Have you ever heard of that revival on the Isle of Lewis? Come talk to me if you want to learn more. I'll send you an audio clip from Duncan Campbell talking about that revival. But uh, uh, this revival was said to have been uh, begun through two sisters, two elderly sisters who lived together, who devoted themselves to prayer and asking the Lord to revive his church in their country. Uh, one sister was crippled with arthritis. She could barely move. The other sister was blind. There was nothing they could do to spread the gospel abroad. So what did they do? They gave themselves to prayer. They said, Lord, we can't do anything. We can't make the change that needs to happen, but you can. And for years, they devoted themselves to faithfully and regularly praying for God to move in their country. And then in 1949, at a meeting in Barva on the Isle of Lewis, the Lord suddenly descended upon a people with such an awareness of his presence that it radically disrupted the whole island. Uh, there... <laughs> There was a dance going on that night with hundreds of young people, that, or uh, almost 100 young people. That's about the number. They were dancing. They were frolicking. They were, they were drinking. They were just having a good time in 1949. And then the spirit and presence of God came upon them with such power that they immediately fled away from the dance and ran to the church. Not because someone came in with a flyer saying, hey, there's a meeting going on down the road at the church. You guys should come. No, it was because God was calling them out of their sin and the only place they knew to go was to the church. That's revival. Church history is thoroughly peppered with remarkable times of great movements of the power of the gospel that stirred up the hearts of God's people with fresh worship and zeal. So as we approach Asbury, we need to start by realizing that true spiritual movements of God have taken place in the past. And therefore, we don't want to immediately dismiss the possibility of, what is of that being what is happening at Asbury. Now, we need to be careful. We need to be, we need to be far more, uh, excuse me, we need to be careful as we approach this. 
there are two things that can really influence us more than, than what is health, healthy. One is the anti-supernatural spirit of our age. Where we, we, we don't believe in supernaturalism, really. We, we confess that we believe supernaturalism, but we live as though we're naturalists. That there's no other power outside of the world. There's nothing that's going to disrupt the normal process and functions of realities in this world. Laws of gravity, laws of physics, uh, science, those kinds of things, uh, the, the uh, weight of mass and speed of light and all of that stuff. Nothing's going to disrupt those things. There are no such things as miracles. We would never openly confess that, but man, we sure do live that way. We need to be on guard against an anti-supernatural spirit infecting our own hearts and minds as we consider things like revivals. And then also, because we know the dangers of Pentecostal charismania, we need to be on guard against that um, jading our perspective of a real move of the Spirit of God among us. Just because someone abuses the name of the Holy Spirit and abuses things that the Spirit may have done in the past does not mean that everything the Holy Spirit does in our day is false. I know there are dangers with the Pentecostal, charismatic, charismania craziness, but we would be just as unfaithful to God as them if we let those abuses keep us from rejoicing when there is a true move of the Spirit of God among us. So we need to be balanced in our approach, and we need to guard against error, but we also need to guard against the immediate knee-jerk reactions that are either for or against events claiming to be a revival. So, in other words, to put it succinctly, we need to be cautiously optimistic. Now, with that said, the reality of church history also tells us that not every movement that is declared to be a revival is, in fact, a true work of the Spirit of God. If you notice in this very brief overview of revivals in the church in church history, I did not mention many that are commonly described as examples of revivals. So for example, I did not mention the second great awakening as a true revival of the Lord. I think certain aspects of it were especially under Azahel Nettleton, I believe was his name. But particularly in the third wave of the second great awakening, you had Charles Finney and whatever good work there was in the Second Great Awakening before him, he corrupted and ruined it all. Often people will speak of the Azusa Street Revival in the early 1900s, 1904, I think, to 1914, or 1905 to 1914, the birth of the Pentecostal movement. People will, uh, alongside, they'll speak of the Brownsville Revival in 1995 down in Florida. And then also... I don't mean to be offensive here, but I did not mention the Billy Graham Crusades when I talked about true, genuine revivals of the Lord. There are many movements that are often referred to as revivals or awakenings, but in reality, they should not be considered genuine moves of the Spirit of God. For a number of reasons. If you want to know my particular beef with uh, Mr. Billy Graham... It's that he made a number of theological compromises for the sake of gaining a following. 
and I can show you evidence of that, blatant evidence. We also see out of some of these quote-unquote revivals fruit that led rather to the strengthening of the church actually led to the weakening of the church. We, we see within them uh, very often that they are influenced too much and blatantly engineered at times by the hand of men. And for these reasons, we need to reject them as genuine moves of the Spirit of God. Which leads us to our second point as we seek to evaluate the work at Asbury. Second main point. Which is, how do we define revival? So the, the first thing we need to start with as we approach Asbury is we need to start with a recognition that God has done many works in the history of the church that we would call revival. And they were true and they were genuine. So we can't just automatically write this off as something God doesn't do anymore. Secondly, we need to make sure we understand what we're talking about when we're talking about revival. What is it? If we're going to evaluate something, whether or not it is a revival, we need to have a conception of what revival itself is. And so let me start, as I always am prone to do, let me start with the negative by mentioning what revival is not. I've got five things here. I could say many more, but five things in particular. And these are based on common thoughts that I've heard people express in relation to revival. Number one, revival is not revivalism. Revival is not revivalism. Nowadays, and especially down south, when most people think of, what most people think of when they think of revival is something like a tent meeting with a fiery evangelist and an altar call. You think of a, a church sign, driving by a church sign, and, and, and on it, you're driving down the road, you pass a church sign, and it says, next Wednesday, a revival meeting, that kind of thing. That is revivalism, that is not revival. Revivalism is really an unfortunate byproduct of the ministry of Charles Finney. Charles Finney began ministering in the 1820s in the latter part of the Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening. And his aim was basically to recreate the work of the Spirit of God that had taken place almost 100 years earlier in the First Great Awakening under Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and the Wesley brothers and others. Beginning in 1795, there was this renewal of the work of the Spirit of God among the people of God. And Charles Finney, coming along in the 1820s, said, we need to further this. We need to get, this, we need to get these fires roaring or else the awakening is going to die out. The problem, uh, that's a good desire. That's a good ambition. I have no problem with that. The problem is that Finney, uh, Finney's method for revival was based on manipulation. Very openly. He, this is not me evaluating him and giving my opinion. This is, this is based on his own words of how he viewed the process of bringing revival to pass, bringing it about. He preached for effect openly and confessed, I preach for effect. And until he saw an effect in the people, he would just keep pounding and preaching. He believed that humanity has, quote, an innate ability to reform itself, end quote. And all that needs to happen for revival to come is to tap into that ability. We need to unlock that ability so that revival can finally come. 
He even said, revival, quote, this is a quote, quote, revival is simply the result of the right use of the appropriate means. It's just man thinking through the right means and then using them appropriately in order to cause effect, to bring change. We see the fruits of that all around us today. So he used various means and tactics to try and manipulate revival. And most, most of what has been called revival since Finney's day has been nothing more than that. It's been mere manipulation. And all of Finney's thinking on this, in my opinion, is pure nonsense. You know, if I think it was W.C. Burns uh, over the, the, the revival in Kilsith. He said that when a revival comes, man needs to make sure he puts no fingerprints on the ark of God. Not even a hand, just make sure there's no fingerprint on the ark of God. Well, Finney, in his opinion, was, no, we need to go grab the ark and tote it around. That was Finney's approach to revival. And God is not going to bless a work like that. He's not going to bless a work with revival when man can get any glory for bringing it about. You can't work up revival. Having an evangelistic tent meeting is not the same thing as experiencing revival. That is revivalism. It's not revival. So that's number one. Number two. I think we all would agree with this one, but it needs to be stated for the record. Revival is not charismatic lunacy. Revival is not emotional excitement that leaves a congregation in disarray and chaos leaving them doing things like barking at one another. That's the Spirit of God, all right? No. Sounds more like what God did with Nebuchadnezzar when he handed him over in judgment. Revival does not leave people walking on all fours, barking like dogs, laughing hysterically and uncontrollably. Revival does not lead people to leap in and out of the baptistry and run around with crazy yelling through the congregation waving their jackets in the air. That is not the revival of the Holy Spirit. That is an unholy work of the flesh and the devil, and it needs to be rejected. That's number two. It's not, revival is not charismatic lunacy. Number three, revival is not emotionalism. Revival, revival is not mere excitement and hyped-up emotions. It, it's not the product of a youth group that gets excited on, on a retreat with, with worship music played and the right series of chords to pluck the heartstrings. Gets them excited for maybe a week or two. That's not revival. It's not the result of some evangelist getting people worked up and stirred up by stories of puppy dogs and grandmothers. It's not revival. Revival is not a temporary excitement or emotionalism. It is a radical change that produces lasting fruit. It is emotional, but it is not emotionalism. Number four, revival is not proven by signs and wonders and miracles. Some in Asbury were claiming that they saw miracles take place there, and therefore God was vindicating this revival as a true work of his hand. Well, you know, the magicians in Egypt performed many signs, wonders, and miracles when Moses came to them from the Lord, didn't they? They, they uh, changed staffs into snakes and turned water into blood and did other things. 
signs, wonders, and miracles. That did not mean that uh, they were from the Lord, did it? Based on that standard that revival is proven by signs, wonders, and miracles, if miracles were the evidence of God's true work, then one, would, one could just as easily say that God was with the Egyptian magicians as he was with Moses. And we know that that's ridiculous. So 2 Thessalonians 2.9 says that it's the activity of Satan that is also accompanied by powers and signs and false wonders. And so signs and wonders in and of themselves cannot confirm whether a work is truly from God. And number five. This is a really important one, okay? As we think about what revival is not, even in light of everything I've shared, we also need to affirm that revival does not have to be perfect in order to be true. In light of the dangers, in light of the corruptions, and man's tendency to rob God of glory and exalt himself, with all of that acknowledged, we need to affirm wholeheartedly that revival does not have to be perfect in order to be true. In Acts chapter 8, for example, there's a true move of the Spirit of God among the Samaritans. And among that, you have this selfish, self-glorifying, power-hungry man, Simon Magus, Simon the Magician. And what's he doing? He's seeking to buy the power of the Holy Spirit with money for his own gain. Are we to throw off the whole move of God's spirit in Samaria there simply because there was one who was false? Or think of the church in Corinth. The church, church in Corinth was obviously experiencing great, a great and genuine move of the Holy Spirit. Paul affirms that in chapter 1. He says, you have been blessed with these gifts of the spirit and you are lacking nothing as you wait for the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, the return. And yet, when we read 1 Corinthians, we are all shocked to find the abuses and the chaos that seem to have been there. Paul, and my point is, Paul doesn't deny that all the, the giftings in Corinth was the result of the Spirit of God moving among them. He doesn't deny that. He simply called this church body in Corinth to honor Jesus Christ with the Spirit's work by bringing everything to order according to the will of God. So he never tells them speaking in tongues is not of the Holy Spirit. Prophesying is not of the Holy Spirit. Having songs to sing in the church body is not of the Holy Spirit. That's, he never says that. He simply says, let all things be done for edification. Just because something's imperfect doesn't mean it's not real and genuine. Think of Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot performed miracles and preached the good news of the kingdom of God along with the rest of the twelve. Matthew chapter 10, you find him going out and healing the sick and casting out demons along with the others. But he fell away and he betrayed our Lord. Does that mean that what Jesus Christ accomplished through Judas and even through the other eleven was not a genuine work of God's spirit? Even what Judas himself was accomplishing for the kingdom of heaven, because he ultimately fell away and betrayed the Lord, are we then to say that every demon he cast out was not from the Spirit of God? Every act of healing he performed was not the result of God working and moving through him? Of course not. 
Are we to discount everything that has happened in Asbury simply because a bunch of false teachers have called it good? Or because much of the music that was being played there was Hillsong music or Bethel music? That's ungodly music. I hope you know that. I'll die on that hill. Music is a vehicle for theology. You give yourself to that music, you're giving yourself, you are submitting yourself to be influenced by that theology. Okay? Music is always a big deal with us, isn't it? Even for me. I don't want to split the church over that. But are we to discount everything that's happened in Asbury simply because of these things? Not necessarily. Time and fruit will tell whether this is a true work of the Spirit of God. Jonathan Edwards wrote about that in The Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God and in Religious Affections. If you want copies of either one, well, I'm not going to print out a copy of Religious Affections. (laughs) But if you want a copy of The Distinguishing Marks of the Work of the Spirit of God, I would be more than happy to print that out for you. But revival does not have to be spotless and without blemish in order to be genuine and true. Now, with those in mind, briefly, how then do we define revival? If that's what revival is not, then what is revival? Well, in essence, revival is, according to Jonathan Edwards, a surprising work of God among his people. It's something that is out of the ordinary. It's something that is utterly unplanned and undeniable. So when revival comes, in other words, we're not going to be all sitting around wondering, is this really revival? I don't know. Has, Has God really moved among us? No, when God moves among his people, his people recognize his hand. Just like when God spoke to the prophets. The prophets did not receive the word from the Lord and then sit around and think to themselves, well, wait a second now. How do I know that that was really from God? Was that just my imagination? Did I just make that up? Was that somebody behind a rock talking to me? No. When God showed up and spoke to the prophets, they knew that God was speaking to them. Well, in a similar way, it's like that with revival. Revival is utterly unplanned. It's unmanipulated by man. It's not something that we can work up. It's not something we can drum up. We can't get excited enough and powerful enough in our preaching or or slap each other on the hand and high five and say, yeah, we're going to have revival. We can't do any of that and make revival come. The Spirit of God is free in what he chooses to do and in what he chooses not to do. He blows like the wind. You don't know where he comes from. You don't know where he's going. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit of God. You can't control the wind. Man, I hate to be the kind of preachers who will have to stand before Christ on that final day and answer for the fact that they claimed that they could bring things like revival. Revival is a moment in time when God decides to rend the heavens and come down in an unusual way. It is God infusing extraordinary spiritual power into the hearts of his people through the ordinary means of grace. So we go about operating according to the means of grace. We we give ourselves to prayer, even when we don't want to. 
We, we give ourselves to the Word of God, to reading, to studying, to meditating, to memorizing the Scriptures. We give ourselves to the fellowship of the saints in the church. We give ourselves to practicing communion and baptism. We give ourselves to the kind of one-on-one -on -one fellowship that the Bible calls us to have, even when we don't feel like there's any kind of effect happening in those things. Because that's what God has commanded us to do. Those are the means of grace. And whether it's imperceptible to us or not, those are the means by which God grows his people. So, plug here. If you are ignoring the reading of the scripture and the studying of the scripture, and you are not praying, if you are not spending real, designated, consecrated time with God by yourself in his word and in prayer every day, then you are in disobedience to the Lord. I'm not saying you got to do a certain reading plan, but I am saying that you need to be seeking the face of God every single morning. You need to be renewing your mind. If you are not gathering together with the corporate assembly of God's people, you are in disobedience to the will of God. And God's not going to grow you without trusting him enough to operate according to the means of grace. Now, that's just end a plug there. In revival... Those same means of grace are enlivened and quickened with the spiritual power that is unusual. Where you're not laboring, you're not laboring before the Lord in order to have a word jump off the page and land on your heart. You pick up the word of God in times of revival and the spirit has quickened your mind and heart so fully that you can't read the word thee without being brought to tears and thankfulness over the grace of God that's been given to you. I remember times in my own life when going before the Lord in prayer, I could not get past the opening line of the Lord's prayer when I said, Our Father, our Father, oh God, you're my Father. You are in heaven, yes, and I don't see you yet, but one day I will. And I know your fatherly care is for me. That, that those words were inflamed in my heart by the Spirit of God. In revival, that becomes the norm, not the exception. We all have moments like that in the Word where, where the Spirit of God comes upon us and quickens us in a moment and it just jumps off. We don't even have to work at memorizing it. It's just planted in our soul. But that's not the constant experience that we have when we go to the Word. In revival, it is. It is God infusing extraordinary spiritual power into the hearts of His people through the ordinary means of grace. And the effect is that the church of Jesus Christ has been spiritually awakened and renewed. Not just in their heart of hearts, but openly, manifestly, visibly changed. At the heart of the matter, revival is nothing less than the realities of the kingdom of heaven being pressed with great power upon the spiritual experience of the church. So that the bridge between heaven and earth seems to collapse. And there's no more gap. And heaven is infiltrating the church of Jesus Christ with power and authority that had been, up to that point, unexperienced. It's the air of heaven being breathed into the lungs of the church with fresh life and power. J.I. Packer, I think, had one of the best summaries 
of revival. He said, revival is God touching minds and hearts in an arresting, devastating, and exalting way. It is God accelerating and intensifying and extending the work of grace that goes on in every Christian's life. That's it. That's what revival is. It's the power and presence of God quickening His grace in our lives. It's God accelerating the effects of that grace and intensifying the reality of that grace in in a way that is beyond the norm and leaving us unable to explain it in any other way than saying, surely the Lord is in this place. Packer goes on to describe revival as the near presence of God giving new power to the gospel of sin and grace. That's, That's revival. It's God breathing with fresh and unusual power upon his people through the truths of the gospel so that you can't even talk about the name of Jesus Christ without feeling your own heart melted with love and joy and thankfulness. Where the Spirit blows upon those embers of the gospel that are in your heart and fans them into a fresh flame of love and zeal and faith-filled devotion. It's awakening in God's people a sense of their sinfulness and the ugliness of their depravity in the light of God's glory, while at the same time bringing them to experience the intense and all-consuming rapture of being taken captive by Christ. Jonathan Edwards described revival as, I love this picture, he described revival as a wave of God's grace, break, like a wave breaking upon the shoreline. Revival is God's, a wave of God's power and grace breaking in upon his people, one that leaves behind it a people who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness and pining and yearning to know more about Jesus Christ. That's how Psalm 80 verses 18 through 19 describes revival to us. Psalm 80, verses 18 to 19. Revive us and we will call upon your name, O Lord God of hosts. Restore us. Cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. So so right there you have revival. Revival is God causing his face to shine more brilliantly upon his people and quickening their hearts with the greater realization of his glory, reawakening them so that they live moment by moment in a greater uh, sense of the reality of God. Psalm 85, verses 6 through 7. Will not you yourself revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Oh, show us your loving kindness, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Revival is God performing a work of spiritual restoration in his people. Enlivening spiritual life in them to the end that they will rejoice in God. Revival is all about God glorifying himself through his people. That's what it is for, and that is its fruit. So, you guys still with me? Revival is a surprising supernatural work of the Spirit of God, bringing the air of heaven and breathing into the church and breathing into it with new life and power. It's a real experience. It's a precious gift that many of God's people have been privileged to enjoy throughout the centuries.
and that all the other people of God have been privileged to pray and prepare for. All right, let me end on a couple of thoughts here, okay? They'll be brief, I promise you. We're going to pick back up right here next week looking at definite signs of revival. But let me close with a couple of thoughts. Number one, if Asbury is, if Asbury or any other spiritual movement is found to be the beginnings of true revival, then you and I as believers not only have the responsibility to give thanks to God for it, but we also have the responsibility to strive with God to see it furthered. If the spiritual movement at Asbury or any other spiritual movement is found to be the beginnings of a true revival from God, then you and I not only have the responsibility to give thanks to God for it, but we also have the responsibility to strive with God to see it furthered. We must pray with the psalmist, Lord, revive your people so that we might rejoice in you. We must ask God to increase the effects of revival upon his people. With Paul, we must pray, 2 Thessalonians 3.1, we must pray that the word of the Lord would run rapidly and be glorified. We must pray that believers, Ephesians 3, 17 through 19, that believers would have a special filling of the Holy Spirit and be strengthened in their inner being so that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. To, to, that they would be strengthened in their, in their inner being to be grounded in love with all the rest of the saints and then would be able to comprehend together the fullness of Christ's incomprehensible love so that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. You have a responsibility to pray for that, beloved. Ephesians 6.24, you have the responsibility to pray that all of God's people would be strengthened with a love for the Lord Jesus Christ that is incorruptible. Is that how you would describe your love for Jesus? An incorruptible love, one that is untainted and undaunted by the temptations of the world? A love that's so sure and steadfast that it keeps you enduring to the end? We're to pray for that that God's people would have that in fullness. We're to pray, we're to fast, we're to labor, to walk in greater holiness in our lives, expressing unto the Lord a holy longing for his kingdom and power to be furthered in our lives in the church and in the world. Believing the promise of Isaiah 64, verse 5, that the Lord meets the one who rejoices in doing righteousness, who remembers him in his ways. Secondly, if this is true revival, we should be thanking God for it and striving with God to see it furthered. That's number one. Secondly, if this is not true revival, then until there is true revival among the people of God, you and I are to seek God for it. You know, we are, we are either experiencing and living in the blessed reality of true revival, or we are sowing seeds of the revival that's to come. Do you believe that? You're either living in revival, or you are sowing the seed of revival that is to come. Let me ask you as we end, what seeds are you sowing? What seeds are you sowing in your families and among your friends? What seeds are you sowing in your neighborhoods and among one another? 
Are you sowing seeds of revival? Are you sowing gospel seeds of Christ's glory and grace? Are you sowing the seeds of revival and and, and watering them with an eye of hope that is looking to God and anticipating the reality that at any moment, any moment may be the moment that God breaks in upon us with power and grace. Any moment might be the moment that God causes one of those seeds to grow. You sowing seed with that kind of hope? May we all strive to live more fully in that reality. Father, we pray with the psalmist in Psalm 85. Will you not yourself revive us again, O Lord, that your people may rejoice in you? Lord, that's our goal. That's our aim, that you would be glorified, that we would be more fully captivated by the reality of Christ. So, Lord, that is our prayer, and we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. First Thessalonians 5, verses 19 through 24. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you. He will surely do it. And that is our great hope. And we go in the peace and in the comfort and hope of Jesus' name. Amen.